Philippians chapter 3. And as you're making your way there, let me just say that Philippians 3 is an intensely personal view into the thinking of the Apostle Paul. If you want to understand what makes Paul tick, Philippians chapter 3 may be the clearest explanation. If you want to grasp what drives someone who lives out the gospel priority, and that's what we've been talking about here in the book of Philippians, how the gospel must take preeminence in our lives, in every aspect of our lives, if you want to understand what drives someone who really lives according to the gospel priority, Philippians 3 opens the hood and lets you see the the true horsepower, if you will, of Christian living. In summary, the Christian life is to be consumed with Jesus Christ. It is to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to pursue Christ, to know Christ, and finally to be transformed completely by Christ. So as we unpack these verses over the next few weeks, know that we are delving into some of the most transformational truth there is to be found. If you find yourself apathetic to the things of God, Philippians 3 will confront you and shake you. If you have developed appetites for the world, Philippians 3 will expose them for the empty things they are. If you have constructed in your own mind and heart a monument to your own moral achievements and stability, what is said here will dismantle your view of yourself. And if you bask in the grace of God, in the person of Christ, you will be moved to never stop cherishing Jesus as your all in all, as your only confidence. For some of you, it will mean salvation. It will mean real conversion. So we begin today then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul has just commended to us two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as examples for us to imitate. And last time we looked at their radical self-sacrifice for others and for the gospel and how that sets them apart as worthy models. 
With this call, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord, Paul picks up this refrain throughout Philippians of joy, rejoice, take joy. And he's linking us back really to chapter 2, verse 18, be glad and rejoice with me. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And he reminds them that his concern is for their good, their safety. He's repeating these things. That's why he says, it doesn't, it's no trouble for me to write these things to you again. And these things are things that Paul has taught them in the past. They're not necessarily things here in the letter of Philippians, but all that Paul has taught them. It's no trouble for me to repeat these things and it's safe for you or a safeguard. The crucial point is that we put our confidence in Christ and not in the flesh, which is another way of saying in ourselves. That we put our confidence in Christ only and never in ourselves. And he uses this phrase three times in these verses. Confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. Paul once put confidence in the flesh. And he has more grounds than anyone else to put confidence in the flesh. To put confidence in means to trust in. We must trust in Jesus alone. We cannot trust in both ourselves and Christ. You might ask, confidence in what or for what? Trust in the flesh or trust in Christ for what? And it's important that we are clear on that point. And the most immediate thing in the text is belonging to God. And I'll show you that in a minute. But the most immediate thing is belonging to God, knowing the blessings of knowing God. What gives us confidence that we belong to God, that we can know him? In verse 9, it is righteousness. That is, a right standing before God. In what do we trust to stand before a holy God who is the judge over all of life and death? In whom do we trust for righteousness? In verses 10 and 11, it is the resurrection. That is eternal life, immortality, blessing instead of damnation. So what is at stake then in our confidence, in our trust, is whether we belong to God and his promises or are outcasts, alienated from God who made us. What is at stake is whether we stand before God as righteous, acceptable in his sight, or guilty, condemned. What is at stake is whether we will know eternal life or eternal damnation. Is your confidence in Christ alone? It is imperative that we safeguard this confidence. In Philippians 3, verses 2 through 7, tell us how to safeguard our confidence in Christ. First, 
beware of additions. Beware of additions. Verse two, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, it's kind of abrupt, isn't it? How Paul moves to this warning. Look out. Finally, brothers, rejoice for me. It's no way I want to... I want to keep you safe. I'm looking to safeguard your faith. Look out. Look out. But there's an urgency to it because there are dogs, there are evildoers, and there are literally mutilators intent on undermining the simplicity of the gospel and the clarity of the gospel and the faith of God's people. And it's clear from these terms, mutilators, and then in verse three, circumcision, that these are Jewish teachers. These are pushers of the religious system called Judaism. It is the religious system that Paul himself had come out of, that Jesus had saved him out of. Now, the book of Acts and other letters of the New Testament tell us that it was Paul's common practice to go to cities where the gospel had never been preached to preach that gospel first in the local synagogues with the Jews, proving that Jesus was the promised Christ, that he was the promised Messiah. And then he would go to the Gentiles and he would preach the gospel. He would preach Christ crucified. And the gospel would transform lives. The Holy Spirit, through the power of that proclamation, would change people's lives and a new church would be born. Paul would ground them in sound doctrine and then he would move on to the next mission. And he would continue that relationship, maintain that friendship in a couple of different ways. He would, first of all, he would send some of his team His apostolic team, Timothy, Titus, whomever it would be, they would go and they would check on the church and see how it was doing, bring reports back to Paul. Other people from the church as they traveled would find Paul and say, here's how things are going. This is what we're facing. And he would at times write letters. This is why we have a New Testament, most of the New Testament. Because Paul would write letters and he would send them to those churches. Philippians is exactly an example of that. Inevitably, Jewish teachers would follow in Paul's wake. They would find these new churches in these cities. And they would come into the church and they would say something like this. So you've received Paul's gospel. That's great. That's great. Jesus, good. We know who Jesus is. We believe Jesus, grace, that's excellent. At least it's a good starting point. But you understand, don't you, that that's that's not all there is to it. That's not the complete gospel. Jesus is the introduction. If you really want to belong to the people of God, if you really want to know God and be right with him and know all of the blessings as his covenant people, then you need to also keep the law. It was the first covenant. And 
If you're going to really keep the law, then you have to become Jewish, which means you must be circumcised. You must be circumcised. And if you're not, you can, you can talk about Jesus and, and, and love Jesus all you want to, but you are still really outsiders. It was a subversion of the gospel. It was a subversion of faith. It was the work of this teaching in Galatia that brought Paul to such fury that he would write in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, let him be damned. I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be damned. Galatians chapter 5, verse 12 He would even go so far as to say, I wish those who unsettle you by insisting that you become circumcised would emasculate themselves. I wish if they're just going to preach circumcision, they just go all the way and cut everything off. It's about as mad as Paul gets. And here he calls these same teachers dogs. This is not pets. They didn't think of these as cute little cuddly things in your living room or even big, bold, I love my dog out in your backyard, in the back of your truck. These dogs were scavengers. They carried diseases. They were sometimes hostile to people. They would eat corpses. They were just wild dogs. And it really is derogatory. It's an insult And it was a very common term that the Jewish people used to describe Gentiles. Those who were outside of the covenant, Gentile dogs. And when Paul calls them dogs, he is making a point. He's flipping the tables. So they are dogs, they are evildoers. They are evildoers because they oppose God's message And to oppose God's message is to align yourself with evil, the opposite of right and good. They are also mutilators. When set up as equal to Jesus, even something considered sacred is nothing more than pagan mutilation. Paul is aligning these Jewish teachers, these who are claiming to have the covenant of God, to be the people of God, to say their religion and their system is no different than pagan religions that just mutilate themselves. Why? Because to add anything to Jesus is to degrade him. And to minimize Jesus is to reject him. Paul would go on in Galatians chapter 5 to explain, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You are severed from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, you and I don't encounter too many Judaizers. The Bible's warning applies to anyone who would draw us away from faith in Christ alone. 
by insisting that Jesus is not enough. That there must also be ritual. That there also must be any checking off of a box or jumping through a hoop to either obtain or maintain a relationship with God to stay in good standing with God. There are those who would draw us away from the simplicity and the exclusivity of Jesus by saying you also must keep a code. That confidence before God requires some achievement. Most of our more popular cults claim this very thing. They include Jesus. If you talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, if you talk to Mormons, they include Jesus. In fact, the great sales pitch is that there's really not that big of a difference between you and us. Roman Catholicism exerts the same teaching. There is always stuff added on. Paul says, look out. Look out. Watch. Beware of things that are added. Are you alert to the dangerous temptations to add anything to Christ? Are you alert to the temptations that say that your confidence must be in Jesus plus this or that? Do you see through the lies of institutions and religions that say it must be Jesus, Jesus is good, but there is also this list? Check, 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 check. Beware of additions. It will safeguard your faith It will safeguard your confidence in Christ. Don't ever accept additives. Additives are alternatives. And there is no other name by which we may be saved. Number two, second safeguard. Treasure your identity. Treasure your identity. Verse three. For we are the circumcision, Paul protests. We are the circumcision. And essentially he means this. We are the covenant people of God. Circumcision was the sign of belonging to God's special people given first to Abraham, not to Moses. It was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. So the sign of circumcision predates the Mosaic law. It was not a sign of the Mosaic code. It was a sign of belonging to the descendants of Abraham to whom were given the promises of a name, a people, a descendants and blessings, a land and blessings to all the peoples of the earth. Genesis chapter 17. It meant you belonged to the family of promise and blessing. But God was always clear that it could not change the sinful condition of our hearts. That no ritual, no ceremony could change who we really are. 
And so he commands the people in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, circumcise your hearts. And he promises in Ezekiel chapter 11, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. There is only one way a cold, stony heart is transformed and that is only when God does it. God promised, I will do this. Our new identity in Christ gives us the right to be called by the names of the people of God. By saying we are the circumcision, Paul marks all believers, Jew, Gentile, as God's special people who belong to him by covenant promise. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Paul wrote, For no one is a Jew who, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. What do you mean? A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. In other words, the legal demand to be physically circumcised could not change the heart, who a person is, or their status of enemy against God. Only the spirit can do that. Paul took the whole thing and flipped it and made sense of it for us. And so we are the circumcision. We are those who belong to God, his covenant people. Now, what defines us as the covenant people of God? He mentions three things here. First of all, we worship by the spirit of God. This is a stark contrast to the flesh. In other words, those who claim to be, quote unquote, the circumcision They worship God by the flesh. They point to their rituals. They point to their man achievements as the basis for their worship to God. And it is dead and lifeless. We worship by the spirit of God. It is the opposite of pagan mutilation. And by worshiping by the Spirit of God, Paul is making the point that it is a divine work once again. It is God who changes the heart. It is the Spirit of God who applies the blessings of the new covenant. It is the Spirit of God who circumcises the heart. It is the Spirit of God and His power and His presence in our lives that enable us to worship God, to love him, to treasure him. Secondly, we glory in Christ Jesus. Now to glory in Christ or to boast in him, it's the same word, to boast in Christ means to find our identity in him. So your boast 
is the thing that you point out to other people that defines who you are. It's the thing that gives you meaning and identity and value in life. That's your boast. It is why we sing, Oh, Father, use my ransom to life in any way you choose, and let my song forever be my only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. We glory in Christ, not in ourselves. We talk about him, not what we've achieved. We rest in him, not in our own accomplishments. We glory in Christ Jesus. We look at the brutality of the cross and we understand and we say it was necessary. It is the only way that the Christ would die, that he would be slaughtered like a lamb as a substitute for my sins, my offenses. We glory in that. Thirdly, we are the circumcision because we put no confidence in the flesh. Now this is a play on words. Circumcision was a removing of flesh Paul takes the image and he makes it representative of anything we might do by our own hand. Anything we might gain by our own status, our own criteria. We put no confidence in the flesh because it can't do anything. can't change anything. Can't draw us near to God, can't bring God near to us, can't change us from enemy to friend. Nothing we can do. To treasure our identity as the people of God means to know, love, and worship God by the presence of His Spirit. It is to glory in Christ, not ourselves. And it is to put no confidence in our own accomplishments or abilities. That is our identity. And Paul says, I want to safeguard your confidence. To keep you confident in Christ, trusting in only him. Treasure your identity. Know who you are. View known, worshiped by the Spirit of God? Do you glory in Christ Jesus? Do you put no confidence in the flesh? Thirdly, reject empty credentials. Reject empty credentials. There is a dose of sarcasm in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And when he says also, he means in addition to being the true circumcision. In addition to worshiping by the Spirit of God. In addition to glorying in Christ. 
in addition to putting no confidence in the flesh, I also have confidence in the flesh. I have reasons to. I have grounds to. If you insist on using criteria of the flesh, then I can hold my own in that realm also, Paul is saying. In fact, if anyone else thinks he can compete with me for confidence in the flesh, I will beat him. No one can keep up with my credentials. And then he goes on to list seven stellar, indisputable credentials that really fall into two categories. The first one are credentials of heritage, circumcised on the eighth day. There you go. You want confidence in the flesh? You want to talk about circumcision, this status of belonging, of being the covenant people of God? I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. That's at the top of the list. It's the fundamental sign of being one of Abraham's descendants. Paul is saying, I'm so ceremonially clean, I squeak. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, I'm not a proselyte. I'm not an add-on. I am a bona fide national. That's bona fide. I'm a bona fide national Israelite. I am of the tribe of Benjamin, the most prominent tribe in the nation of Israel next to Judah. It was the only tribe in addition to Judah that remained loyal to the house of David when the nation split. So Benjamin was prominent, proud. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. What do you mean by that? He means I embody the culture and the values of the Hebrew people. I represent it all. I embody everything that a Hebrew could be. I have all of the credentials of heritage and belonging. Second are the credentials of zeal or commitment. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was well-trained. I was disciplined. I was respected. I was held in high esteem, both by those outside of the Jewish faith, and I was held in high esteem by those within the Jewish faith. As a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. You can't be more zealous than murdering the opponents of your faith. We see this all over CNN, don't we? You can't show more zeal than taking the lives of those opposed to your faith who would seek to undermine it, which is how Paul, as a Pharisee, as a one in Judaism, viewed the Christian faith. So as to zeal, I was a persecutor. I didn't just sit around talking about those Christians. I went out and I killed them 
as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is not saying that even as a Pharisee, even with all these credentials, that he came to the conclusion that he had no sin. But he means blameless as far as the law is concerned. He followed the law's provisions for sin to the letter. Every sacrifice, every confession, every anything Paul could do to absolve himself of sin, he did according to the letter of the law. That's what Paul's saying. How committed was Paul? How zealous was Paul? That zealous, that committed. He had all of the credentials. And I don't think Paul's exaggerating. I think this is a pretty honest, fair assessment of himself. Such credentials, such pedigree, such zeal would certainly be grounds for confidence before God. But, verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. These words gain and loss are accounting terms. Paul is presenting a ledger. And in this ledger is a column of credit and there is a column of debit. And in the credit column, Paul put all of his heritage And all of his zeal. These were the items in which he looked at and went, this is credited to my account. That I was circumcised on the eighth day. That I was of the people of Israel. That I was of the tribe of Benjamin. That I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Credit. 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 I became a Pharisee, a teacher and interpreter of the law of God. Credit. I persecuted the church. I destroyed my enemies. Credit. Pleasing God while I was doing it. That was his perspective. He was serving God by killing Christians. Credit. As to righteousness under the law was blameless. Credit, 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 credit. All in the credit column. And in the debit column, nothing that I'm aware of, nothing would bring me loss. I couldn't come up with anything because if anything entered here, I dealt with it according to the law, credit. What kind of financial confidence would you have if your credit column was full and your debit column empty? If it was all income and no expenses, if you only received money but had no bills, but, Paul says, I moved everything from the credit column to the debit column. 
all of the gain in which I boasted. All of the gain in which I put my confidence has become a liability. I have counted it all as loss. That doesn't just mean it's nothing. It means it counts against me. It has become debt. And now in the credit column, only Jesus. Just Christ. He's everything. He's the only thing you'll find in my credit column. And he's enough. He's enough. He's sufficient. When Paul says, for the sake of Christ, he doesn't mean for Christ's good. What he means is, I have emptied all of the so-called gain out of my credit column for the sake of filling it with Jesus and Jesus only. Because Jesus doesn't share space. He doesn't share space with my heritage. He doesn't share space with my zeal. He doesn't share space with my achievements or my good intentions. Nothing. The only way Jesus can be in the credit column is if everything else is emptied out and dumped into the debit column and seen as the liabilities it is. Jesus cannot be the best gain in your credit column. He has to be the only gain in the credit column. Anything else is to put confidence in the flesh is to place your trust in something other than Jesus. What's in your ledger today? What's in your ledger? I bet like most people, if you were honest, you would claim that there's both gain and loss in your ledger. That certainly your debit column has a few items in it but that there's a number of things in your credit column also. And they're worthy of confidence. I say this because I think this is how most of us measure our lives. We may not always be conscious of it, but this is how we measure life. I let my husband shower first this morning. Credit. I didn't cuss the guy who cut me off on the way to work. Ding, credit. I didn't cheat on my trig test. Credit. I lost my temper with my five-year-old who stuffed the toilet so full of toilet paper that they had to, they had to stop the ferry system for an hour on the Puget Sound. Debit. I told my boss I liked his beard, but I lied. Debit. I resisted smoking today. 
credit. It was only for a couple seconds, but I hit that porn site that I knew was lurking and waiting to snare me. Debit. I really wanted to buy that item, but I said no so that I knew that we could give faithfully this week or this month to church and to ministry. Credit. I only thought the cuss words toward the lady who cut me off on the way home from work. That should be a debit, but I was tired, so we'll call it a credit. (laughs) And we figure, whether we are aware of doing it or not, that if there's more in the gain column than the loss column, we're in the black. But your ledger, my ledger, it's all red. It's all in the red. And the more you place your trust in the credit column that you have filled with your morality, the deeper your debit column goes, the fuller it gets. And every time you credit yourself, God says debit. Credit. Debit. Thomas Watson rightfully said, Morality may damn as well as vice. A vessel may be sunk with gold as well as with dung. There is only one vessel of safety. There is only one vessel that will bear you safely through judgment and into eternity. And that is Jesus. So where is your confidence? Is it in Jesus Christ or is it in yourself? And I'm speaking to church people. It is a great tragedy that I see and it breaks my heart to count on your credit column. You were made for him. You were crafted for him to belong to him, to be satisfied in him. And all your moral gain is an illusion. It's just an illusion. An empty illusion. And you know what? There's only one thing that will keep you from him. There's only one thing to keep you from forsaking your powerless moral credentials to keep you from putting all of your confidence in Christ. And that's pride. It's pride. We don't reject Jesus because there's enough intellectual uh, arguments and rational thought opposed to the gospel. We don't reject Jesus because there's not enough evidence to prove that he was who he claimed to be. 
We reject Jesus because we do not want someone else ruling us. We want to take credit for our own standing. God will not accept it. That is why the only way to come to Jesus is with empty hands and bowed knees. Bankrupt. The only thing that can keep you from Jesus is pride. Self-righteousness. Confidence in your flesh. Confidence in your own morality. One writer once said that the true enemy of the best is not the bad, but the good. That's why sinners came to Jesus. That's why harlots and tax collectors, they came to Jesus. They knew they needed him. Jesus said, I didn't come for the well. I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. I came for the sinners. There is nothing I would rather say and claim than the words of this hymn. And if you belong to the covenant people of God, and worshiped by the Spirit of God, if you glory in Christ Jesus, if you put no confidence in the flesh, it will resonate with you too. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss. And pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood.